this morning, you got your Bibles, we're going to jump into 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. It's where we've been. Uh, we're supposed to be the last two weeks, but of course we canceled. Um, and if you remember, Timothy is a young pastor. He's actually pastoring in the city of Ephesus. Paul is in prison in Rome. And the reason we're calling this the last days is because this was Paul's last days. He's getting ready to die. He's going to get killed and martyred for the faith because he has stood up for his faith and he's in Rome appealing to the basic Supreme Court of Rome, the emperor, waiting to get the sentence back, which we know from church history is a death sentence. He's going to die. And so he's writing letters, which is why we have all these letters in the New Testament, and specifically this letter to Timothy, who is a young man who has been faithful to stay in Ephesus for many years to pastor that local church while Paul couldn't come back to it. And Timothy has been faithful to raise up men and send them out, a church that's, that's sending out people to, to do God's work. And so Paul's trying to write to this young minister and encourage him in his last days. And he's trying to remind Timothy, too, to not get too comfortable because it's your last days, too. It's all of our last days. There's going to come a last day when Christ comes back, when Jesus comes from heaven back to earth, and it's all going to end, so don't get too comfortable. And so Paul's writing this letter to, second Tim, to Timothy, the second letter, after he wrote him a first one earlier, and he's trying to encourage him and get him ready because he knows he's going to die. He's in his last days. And this is kind of his last statement to his spiritual son. It's kind of like if someone were to write a letter, they're on their deathbed, and they want their children to know some important things that maybe they're afraid they didn't get before. They've said them before, but they didn't get before, or they just want to overemphasize some things. That's this letter. Paul is writing this to who he calls his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy. And Timothy was a faithful person to Paul. He traveled with him. He laid his life down for Paul. He allowed Paul to disciple him and has submitted his life to be discipled and to go where Paul asked him to go. It's this perfect, beautiful example of what it looks like for men to, to fulfill the Great Commission and to serve Christ with their lives. And that's where we find this letter. Last time, in chapter 1, we talked about, he was telling Timothy, you're going to need to guard the faith. It's something you have to actively guard because there's a fight, there's an enemy. There are people who don't want this faith to go out because it's revolutionary and it overthrows everything. It messes everything up, this new faith. It's not new, but it was new to the Jews and new to the Romans to hear as they spread the news of this new faith that they thought they needed to stop. And so now what I want us to look at is he picks up in chapter 2 and he says this word, faithful men. Okay, there is a load of discussion in our culture right now over what manhood is, right? What is manhood? What is biblical manhood? We don't have a picture anymore for young boys what manhood looks like. Can I just tell you that? I'm not sure the old picture was all that great, so let's just admit that too. The old picture of the macho man, you know, do everything, support your family, come home, put your shoes up, your wife puts them on for you. You know what I mean? 1950s pictures you see. I'm not sure that was really great either. So let's not get too concerned like, oh my goodness, but we do need to have a conversation because Paul is a man writing to a young man and he's trying to get him to see, and for all of you out there, you interact with young men on a probably regular basis. You might be a young man. You might be planning to have young men and have children. You come to church. There's young men running around. What do I do with them? They're full of energy. 
I want to tape them, I want to duct tape them to a wall, right? Stop, here's tape on your mouth. Yay, we're good, right? Because that's what culture teaches us to do with young boys, right? You sit down, be good, do what you're told, because that's the way to have success in life, right? Because that's exactly how people, like Alexander the Great overthrew the world by sitting down and doing nothing and being a good boy. That's, that's the way to do it. See, we, I say that, and you're like, so do you want them to be bad boys? No, but we can't even have a conversation anymore because to begin to open this Pandora's box is like everybody panics and all these thoughts and lies that we've been told start to fly in about manhood and about the evil that men do and yeah, there's some good and who are the good and who are the bad and all this stuff that comes in. And Paul knows this, which is exactly why he's getting ready to talk to Timothy about this. The word faithful means to be filled up with faith. What does a filled up with faith man look like? Don't answer out loud, just think. What do you think a filled up with faith man looks like? Most of the time when we think of that, you see a guy, and he's pretty attractive, smile, he's charismatic and kind and wonderful. And we think, now there's, there's a man, right? He's got good abs, he's been working out, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what we think. When I said the image of the man you pictured, did you picture Jesus coming to church and sitting on the front row and making a whip? And then about halfway through the service, he gets up, starts throwing over tables and starting whipping you and your children outside the doors? That actually happened in Scripture. As a man, Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man saying, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of watching you worship and it doesn't mean anything to you. And I have the authority. I'm not saying we do. <laughs> but Jesus had the authority to do that in his own temple that his father built. But see, we don't ever have that image. Or if we do, we just take that image. Oh, yeah. And a machine gun, too. No, he didn't kill anyone, right? He's not got an M60 blowing people away like Rambo being like, I win in the temple. That's wrong as well, Right? And so we're so confused over this, and so Paul is writing this letter to say that. And can I just tell you, this is the original curse of mankind. In the Garden of Eden, Adam placed his faith in himself and what he thought was right and his understanding of what the serpent, Eve, and the results he saw happen were going to bring him. The Bible says that we have a curse on us, not because of what Eve did, but because of Adam's follow through with what Eve did. There's some scholars who believe that had Adam said, no, I'm not going to do that, that he could have actually been the redeemer to his wife and we would be living in paradise. I don't know if that's true. And that didn't happen. <laughs> Why? Because men have issues, right? And so at that moment, when, when Adam is faced with the dilemma that men are faced with, knowing that if I say no to my wife, it's not going to go well for me in the garden, right? There's going to be animosity between us, and then I'm going to have to do something about that serpent, and he looks kind of scary, I'm just going to eat. Can I just say that that's kind of what men kind of done ever since? They're either extremely violent, and I'm going to just take everybody out, and I'm going to rule and reign, or they're passive. And just sit back, do nothing, hope it all works out, try to make everybody happy, and that's manhood. And this is what it says. Let me, let me tell you the result of the fall. The Bible's clear. When you read Genesis chapters, you can go read this later. 2, 3, and 4. 
the author uses some words. He uses a word for desire where he says the wife is going to desire, okay, desire her husband. The word there for desire, he uses again in chapter 3, he uses again in chapter 4. It's not a good desire. It's a desire to rule over him. It's not a desire like you're the man, oh, I love you. Like that would make marriage great, right, for us as men. That's not what he's talking about in Genesis. He's saying that there's this animosity now. And so here's the deal. The result of the fall in Genesis on marriage and in human relationships throughout history has been an ongoing struggle between the battle of the sexes. Women seeking control and men seeking dominance. And that's why we have wars. That's why we have wars in our homes. That's why I have a war with, in my own heart half the time. Because God tells us that that was going to be what happens. And it comes from us placing our faith, faith being a faithful person, filled with the faith of belief in everything around us. So I'm going to choose to not believe God's word that said I shouldn't eat that tree, but I'm going to choose to believe someone else's word. The people closest to me, maybe, or the serpent. I'm going to choose to look at the results. Eve ate. She's not dead. God must have been wrong. So I'll eat. And instead of truly asking God what his opinion is and dealing with the consequences of the truth of God's word and what it means, we just kind of make it up. And we don't want to grapple with what this really means in Scripture. Can I tell you, this week in New York City, this week in New York City, a law was passed. That now children can be aborted full term. As long as they haven't come out of the womb, yet they can be aborted. If a woman is having contractions, she can have an abortion and have that child killed by law. New York won't let criminals be lethally injected, but they will let children have a syringe shoved in the back of their head and killed at full term like that. How did we get here? It's nothing new. The Bible talks about sacrificing your children to Molech in the Old Testament, child sacrifice. We've got child sacrifice in our culture. I can't have this child. It's too much of a sacrifice. That's called child sacrifice. If you've had an abortion, can I just encourage you with what we're going to read here in just a second? There's grace. There's love and there's forgiveness from God Almighty. There are murderers all over God's story who are forgiven and used by God mightily for his purposes and his glory. Because God is just that good to take what's awful and turn it into something good. But he doesn't ask us to take something awful and tell people it's okay and good. And that's what's happening. So how did we get here? Can I just tell you? There's no abortion if a man, and I'm going to be blunt, doesn't plant his seed. There's no abortion if a man doesn't plant his seed. He's got to make the choice for whatever reason to do that. And if he follows his lusts irresponsibly, then one day you're going to wake up and look around and say, you know, I really didn't think through this whole child thing. Maybe we should just get rid of it. It's on the same side as the other side, too, with the female. She doesn't want to submit to the reality of the life that's facing her as a result of the consequences of the choice she makes. But let's just be honest. Until mankind, specifically men, step up to be faithful and understand what that means in grace, which we're going to look at, we're in trouble. 
And that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy. The first thing he says to him is he says, you therefore my son. He gives him this layout of how to guard the faith and to be careful. He encourages him. He says, you therefore my son. Based on everything I just told you in the first chapter, you my son. He refers to him as a son. They're not related. He just says, you are, like we're so spiritually linked. You're my spiritual son. I wish this was still the case in the church. I wish the church still expected relationships like this, that we believed in discipleship. Unfortunately, we don't. But this is the biblical mandate. He says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Wait, be strong in the grace? I thought it was be strong in the wit. Be strong in the war, be strong... Be strong in the grace. Can I just tell you, we've taught people for generations in our country. I had a conversation with someone yesterday for four hours, a spiritual conversation for over four hours, talking to them about their faith. Incredible conversation. Encouraged me. I was able to encourage them. And as we're talking about that, it, it just it, it hit me that we've taught the path to be great in this life is to be strong in works. Let me say that again. We've taught that the path in this life to be who you want to be, to get to where you want to be, to get what you want, is to be strong in works. Paul could have told Timothy that. Based on the fact that I mentioned grace in chapter 1 to you already, it's time for me to lay the works on you, buddy. He doesn't. He looks at Timothy, he says, man, if you're going to guard this faith, you've got to be careful to be sure you're doing it in grace, not in works. That you're not picking up the mantle in your own strength to do what you want, but you're truly trusting that there is a God that even when you mess up, when you thought you were doing the right thing and it ended terribly, there's a God who says, I want to extend my grace to you. That's why I sent my son, is so Jesus would die in your place and give you something you didn't deserve, which is a relationship with me and eternal life. He's looking at Timothy. He's like, Timothy, I know you've probably made mistakes in Ephesus as a pastor. Maybe Paul had heard about them. Can I just tell you, we're human. We all make mistakes. I just confessed that we bought curriculum and it was a mistake. We wasted money. We tried something. It didn't work. Was it wrong? Was it evil? No, we tried the right thing. It's just like, no, it doesn't. That probably wasn't the best decision we've made as a church. I can admit that. Why? Because there's grace. Do you understand that all the stories of the Bible, you ready for this? When you look at each person in history, their life is a mess. I mean, just think about this. It's amazing any marriage survived in history, any of them. Think about Abraham. He looks at his wife one day and says, God spoke to me, we're moving. Where? I don't know, we're just going to go. Let's load the U-Haul, party on. Say what? Yeah, moving everything. Herds, it'll be good. Where are we going? Right through enemy territory. It'll be fine. We'll be protected by God that spoke to me, who's never spoken to anyone this way before. Let's go. How many wives in our culture would submit to that? And then, while they're traveling, twice, he tells Sarah to lie and say, you're my sister, and almost has her commit adultery with other men. And the other men have to confront Abraham and say, I almost had sex with your wife, and as a result, God would have cursed and killed me you're terrible. And he's the father of our faith. Really. Bad choice, God. Bad curriculum choice. God did that to display his grace. 
To say, if I can use Abraham, if I can do this, if Abraham will keep coming back to me and be faithful to me, to be full of faith in me, not himself, and repent and have a relationship that works that way, I can do amazing things with someone like that. And then you have Moses. Moses was a disaster. Kills somebody at 18, runs off, goes and hides. Probably doesn't even tell the family he killed anybody. Probably hit it. Gets married. At 40, God appears to him. Tells him to go back to where he killed somebody. And he's got to deal with that. And he has an anger problem his whole life. He gets to the end of his life and he strikes a rock instead of doing what God says. And God says, you can't go into the promised land because you acted in the old anger that you've always had. You've had this struggle, just like Abraham had a struggle with lying. Moses had this struggle with anger that he always had. Now, can you imagine being his wife? Honey, I got to tell you something. I hit a rock today. You did? Yeah. And you know that beautiful new house and land that we were going to get and go into? Yeah. We're going to die in a wilderness wandering around. Love you. Have a nice day. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. I mean, you go one story after another, and there's a story of awful mess that God says, watch what I can do. This isn't about you and your works. This is about what I can do if you'll put your full faith, faithful in me, even in the midst of the mess. You know, one of the hardest things to convince people often when they're really broken and they understand their sin, not pridefulness, but they really are broken, is that they can actually be forgiven. Do you believe that God says that he'll forgive or not? Because if he says he'll do it, then he'll do it. And how dare you doubt his goodness and his faithfulness to forgive you? Do you have struggles? Yeah. Peter struggled with racism. The apostle Peter was a racist. Twice Paul had to leave the mission field to confront Peter on his racism. Twice. God had to send a specific vision with a sheet to get him to quit being racist and tell people to become Jewish to be able to be Christian. Had God not done that, we'd all be Jewish as well as Christian. Peter had a people-pleasing racism issue. God still used him. This is what he's writing Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, you got to be strong in this grace because there are a bunch of people running around who want to tell you that it's all about works and measuring up and it's all about comparison and all this stuff and that is so wrong. That's not the story of scripture. That's not what God's taught. That's not what he's done in human history. It's about his grace. Otherwise, Christ didn't need to come. If it was about works, God could have just had, you know, some prophet come to the earth and say, hey, do more of the Old Testament, have a nice day, and leave. He sent Christ to die in our place as the substitute sacrifice judgment because he knew we couldn't measure up. And people in the Old Testament were saved because they trusted that in the future God would provide a sacrifice that they couldn't do themselves. And so when they made the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they made those by faith, knowing they weren't enough. Just like when you do things and you get done with a spiritual conversation and you go, man, I didn't say that. I could have said that. Man, that wasn't enough. I could have done this. I could have done... And you like roll it around in your head till you're, you know, kicking yourself. It's like you had a spiritual conversation. <laughs> praise God. Most people won't open their mouth and praise God for anything. Could you have done better? Sure, but man, let's just celebrate the fact you opened your mouth. I mean, that's the beauty of this. And then he says, look at this. And what you've heard from me, Timothy, 
in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, Paul says, the stuff you've heard that I've told all kinds of people, not the private conversations we've had in the back about my personal opinions on, you know, whether broccoli or Brussels sprouts are better. I mean, not that, but the stuff I've said and taught and modeled, that stuff in the presence of many people, commit that to faithful men, men filled up with faith who will be able to teach others also. In other words, Timothy, you're going to die. You think it's just me in my last days? Um, your last day could be tomorrow. Listen, we were driving last night. Roads got slick and twice we came over an overpass and the car did this. One time we were doing 70 when we first hit it. The guy that was driving looked at me. I looked at him. He goes, did you feel that? I said, I felt that. He goes, I'm slowing down. <laughs> so we slowed down to about 55. Went a little bit further. Whoop. I'm going to slow down some more. <laughs> we could have been dead like that, man. Doing 70 coming over and overpass, and you're off. Dude, that would have been bad. Bad. And for some reason, wasn't my time yet. It's not my last day yet. So he's writing to Timothy and he's saying, look, you've got to prepare to be gone because you're going to be gone someday. You need to leave a spiritual legacy like I left in you, Timothy. You need to look for people you can pour your life into. And specifically, we got to call men out to step up to be men because they're the ones that cause all the problems. They're the one the curse comes through. And we've got to call them to something more than what they are. Can I just tell you, we don't do that anymore. And it's sad, and it's killing us. And I'm not saying burdensome. I'm not saying you better measure up. I'm saying looking at them and saying, man, to be a husband, to be a man, to be a father, you are going to need the grace of God all over your life. It is going to cost you everything to do that. Look at what Jesus said. Jesus said this. Then Jesus came near and said to them, these are some of his last words to his disciples. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the eight, till the last days. Look, Jesus' model of discipleship and his model to reach the world is just stupid. I've said this before. It makes no sense to anything we model in our culture. If you want to change the world, you got to get to Washington, D.C. in our culture. You got to get a really important position. You got to get to the top and you got to market yourself well and raise funds and do all this. Jesus lives in Nazareth for 18 years working construction. Walks out one day and gets baptized by John the Baptist when John's like, you need to baptize me. Does, and then just starts calling like 12 guys. Like, hey, would you like to follow me for the next three and a third years and like completely turn the world upside down? 12 guys. He's the son of God. Every time he got a crowd, he gave a hard teaching and they all left. Because they're like, ah, oh, yeah, we don't like that. We're, we're not going to believe you. And he looked at the disciples. He said, what about you guys? And they're like, we, we got nowhere else to go. We kind of left everything. So if this doesn't work, we're kind of done. <laughs> like that was their response. <laughs> They're like, we're just going to be faithful to you. We don't know what else to do. And in the end, when Jesus is crucified, it looks like his ministry is a complete and utter debacle and failure. I've said this before, but there were three people at the foot of the cross, right? There was his mother who claimed to be a virgin, Crazy Mary, right? Oh, there's Crazy Mary with her son on the cross. 
There was Mary the prostitute. There's Jesus and his friend, right, that he saved. And there was John, the effeminate disciple. And there's his other lover. Because John was the disciple that laid on Jesus' lap. Can I just tell you that this is what God calls us to? He calls us to call people to the faithfulness to grace. Not the faithfulness to do all this stuff, but the faithfulness to believe that God can forgive, that he can restore, and that he will motivate us in his grace to do good works. Are we supposed to do good? Sure. Paul says, teach them everything, or Jesus says, teach them everything I've told you guys. He, he tells them to do the same. Here's one of the ways we talk about it in our church. I always tell people they need to be farts for Jesus, okay? And I've got a biblical basis for this. It's from 2 Corinthians 2, 14. It says, but thanks be to God who always puts on display in Christ and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, right? For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we are an aroma of death, leading to death. You ever been in a car and one of your kids lets one go, right? And they're smiling? <laughs> You're like, that is not funny. That smells like death. And they're like, I know, it smells great to me. This, this is this verse. He goes on and he says, and who is, and he says, but to some, the aroma of life, or life leading to life. And who is competent for He says, who's competent for this? Who can do this? You can't without the grace of God. You can't do it. You're going to stink if you don't have God's grace, you're going to put off bad aroma. But if you're a fart for Jesus, which is faithful, available, real, teachable, and surrendered, if you'll be farts for Jesus, he can make it be the aroma of life to people. But can I tell you to some people, it's going to stink. And they want no part of it. You see, we, we can't control how people respond to an aroma. Especially people like, I'm allergic to a lot of things, Right? Like, I think it's one of the reasons why God, in his grace, didn't have me pastor like a really old church out in the middle of nowhere. Because when those ladies come in with that powder on, man, I just, I can't even breathe. I'm like, <laughs> like, it'd be awful to, like, maybe he'll call me to that someday. I don't know. But, man, that's tough for me. I'm just being honest. Like, if I've, I've sat in churches and they've been in front of me and I've had to get up and go to another seat because I'm like, I, I'm, I'm going to be terrible <laughs> all through service, which I already do, only it's going to be worse. This is what Paul's saying. He's like, look, we have got to be put on display. Where are the men that are willing to be put on display in grace? They're willing to surrender their lives, to not demand their own rights, to not say it's her fault, it's the serpent's fault, it's everybody, but to say, yeah, it's me. I own it, and I own the grace of God to forgive me when I fail. And I'm going to lead well, and I'm going to love well, and I'm going to give my life well. And sometimes God's going to call me to pick up and fight, and sometimes he's going to call me to lay down and surrender, and I've got to be so close to him in his grace that i got to listen for when to do that because I have the tendency to do the wrong one. I have the tendency to lay down when I should be fighting and fighting when I, lay, uh, when I should be laying down. And if God's not with me in this, and that's what he's telling Timothy, man, you've got to be ready in these last days because people are going to man manipulate this. So what's going to happen if you commit to be a fart for Jesus? If you commit to be this kind of a person and this kind of a man, here's what's going to happen. Here's what he says. Next thing. Share in suffering. Well, that's not encouraging. No, he's like, it's, it's hard. 
It's going to feel like you're suffering because your flesh doesn't want to trust in grace. Your flesh wants to do all the good things and then prove itself and show everybody on display. Put yourself on display and say, look at me. Look how awesome I am. Look at my identity. Look at what I do. And Christ is saying, would you let me put you on display? Would you just like work construction for 18 years and wait until I tell you go? Let me put you on display. You'd be faithful to go to synagogue and take care of your family and do all these things. Because that's what my son did when he came to earth, by the way. Would you just be faithful? He goes on and he says, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Interesting that he uses this illustration, right? He could have used any illustration. Shepherd, right? Farmer, which he uses later. But he chooses this one as a good soldier. Because in the chapter before this, he's talking about guarding the faith. He says, as a good soldier. And listen, Timothy would have understand when he said soldier, he meant a Roman soldier. Roman soldiers died. If you didn't die when someone told you what to do as a Roman soldier, they executed you. There wasn't like trial and jail. There was, you're dead. On the battlefield, they just killed you, it's over. Like a Roman soldier, when he committed to be a soldier, knew what he was committing to. He was committing to give his life for Rome, period. And he knew that if he didn't do that or he went back on that commitment, he would be executed. And so he uses this, he says, as a good soldier, not as a bad soldier, not as one that wants his own pride, but a soldier that's more for Rome than they are for themselves. That you lift Christ up, not yourself up. Then he says, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the recruiter. He says, the first thing is a personal relationship with the recruiter. One person, the master. Who are you going to please? Who are you going to please? And then he says also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So once you make the decision about the relationship, that relationship then dictates what you do because you're so grateful for the relationship. So the reason that you follow the the laws and you understand what God wants from you and you want to know what he says is not because I don't want to have a relationship with God. I want to keep him at a distance. I don't want to have to do anything. It's because I so want to be close to him and know his heart so that I do what he wants me to do and I treat people well. He goes on and he says, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get the share of the crops. The first. What does he mean by that? It's hard work. Have Have any of you been in a farming family? Farming is hard work. We tried to do a garden multiple times. We quit. It's so much easier to go to the store. It just is. And it's so much easier when you don't have a husband that tills all your strawberries under. Hypothetically speaking. See that, it's hard. Gardening, like raising crops, you got to trust in weather and you got to water them and weed them and the bugs come in. And it's just like, ah, it's just so much easier to have everybody go do that. And I go to the store and they're on the shelf and they're so pretty. They've been washed and they're ready to go, right? So you get E. coli and die. No, I'm just kidding. Like, it's all there. And so he's saying it's going to be hard work. So you make a decision about the relationship. Once you make that decision, you figure out what the rules are. Because, man, I want to win with this, with this relationship I have. I want to do what God asked me to do. I want to do it how he asked me to do it, in his grace. Not because I'm trying to prove something. And then he goes on. He says, the hardworking farmer, he just works because he knows, I'm going to get crops eventually. I'm going to have to trust in the rain and do all that. And maybe I don't, maybe I, but I'm just going to work hard and trust God's going to produce the fruit because I can't make it rain, right? 
goes on, he says, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And then he says this, and I love this. He says, Timothy, here's the key. When you're looking at competing as an athlete, when you're looking at doing these things, it's easy to slip back into works. To say, I'm going to be a good soldier. I'm going to be a good athlete. I'm going to be a good farmer. And he says, hold on. Let me remind you, keep your attention on Jesus Christ as risen from the dead and descended from David. (laughs) If that can't be more specific, like... Remember, Jesus' name means Yahweh, who is the Messiah, who saves, like Yahweh saves, who is the Messiah. He's like the God of the Old Testament, who is the Messiah, who saves you. That guy, risen from the dead, descended from David. I love how he puts descended on David on the end. David was, like, he had some issues. I don't know if you've ever read the story of David before, but David was kind of an adulterer. He was a murderer. He, he, he. Yeah, he killed Goliath, but then he chopped his head off and made a spectacle of it and carried it around. I'm not sure God asked him to do that. It's kind of gross, but that's what happened. Like, David struggled with pride. At one point, he acted like he was insane, made a treaty with the wrong people. And, like, you look at the life of David, and if you really read it, can I be honest with you? If you really read the life of David, you don't go, I want to be a David. (laughs) You read it, and you'd be like, I want to be better than David. He's kind of messy. David struggled with sexual sin his whole life. He comes to the end of life, and the only way that he could be comforted was to put a maiden in his bed. Scholars have debated what that means. I just think it means he struggled with sexual sin his whole life. The only way they could find comfort was to stick a maiden to sleep with him. And he didn't tell his counselors, no, don't do that. David was not, but God chose David in his grace to bring the line of his son. And look at what he says. This is according to my gospel. And I love this. He's not saying my gospel as in I have a different one. He's saying the gospel that I preach wherever I go. That this story is true. And then he says, I suffer for it to the point of being bound like a criminal. That's exactly where he is in Rome. But God's message is not bound. This is why I endure all things for the elect. So they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says, I do all this. The reason I'm in my last days, the reason I'm calling you to do this, Timothy, the reason I'm calling you to his grace and I'm calling you to do this is because there are people who haven't heard and haven't come to know the Lord yet. There are people who are ready to receive him. There are people God has been working on. And if you'll just take the time to talk to them and encourage them and build into them, that's why I suffer. I don't suffer because he's trying. He's like, I'm not trying to prove something here in Rome. I'm Paul, look at how long I can spend in jail. Peter's not in jail like I am. That's not Paul's motivation. Paul's like, I'm here. The reason I'm here is because I just want to make my Savior known. And so I'll endure anything if it means, you ready for this? I'll have more children. I'll have more sons and daughters in the kingdom. More brothers and sisters in the kingdom. A larger family. Man, I'll, I'll endure anything for that. And in our culture, we're constantly trying to figure out how not to have kids. Because we know when we have them, it makes us endure. (laughs) There's a lot of endurance. See, this is the beauty of the gospel. He says, I endure it so they might know him. They might obtain what I know is true and experience the grace that I experience. And then he goes on, this is a trustworthy saying. 
For we have died with him. We will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he can't deny himself. This verse can be really confusing. Let me tell you why it's really confusing. Because most of the time when you or people read this verse, it exposes exactly where your heart is. If you read this verse understanding the grace of God, you smile and celebrate. If you're someone that struggles with works, trying to prove your worth to God and stay connected to God and that proves something, you read this verse and say, oh, if I deny him, I'm going to go to hell. And that's not true. If you read the context of this verse, he says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. It doesn't say we might live with him if you're really good, if you keep it up, if you really endure, if you really, if you really do the right things. Oh, oh, then you might get to heaven. He says, no, if you've died with Christ, you will live with him. If you've placed your faith in his grace and his payment for you, like David did, like Moses did, like Abraham did, regardless of the mess you make in what you do, God will turn it upside down, use it for his glory, and invite you into his kingdom. Because he wants to put himself on display and have everybody look at you and go, ooh, <laughs> David, ooh, David, ooh, Moses, ooh, Abraham, <sighs> and go, So, so if you read this, he says, if we endure, we will reign with him. And then he says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. That doesn't mean like I stop believing in Jesus. Like I'm, I'm, listen, when you fully commit your life to Christ and Christ comes into your life, the next verse says what? He will what? What's it say? He remains. So let me get this straight. God remains faithful. He remains faithful even when I say I don't have faith. I don't believe in you anymore. I'm mad at you. I'm going to sin and do what I want. He still remains faithful. But I just thought he would deny me. Which is it? Well, if you interpret this properly, what you know this means is it's a one-time denial. It's you never accepted Christ. The reason you're not enduring is because you didn't accept. I heard a quote. This past week, really good quote. And he was talking about this idea of enduring in the faith. And he said, those who know Christ have been chosen by God and they've chosen God. You ready for this? They will have salvation. And those who have been chosen They'll endure. See, our problem is we don't think we'll endure because we don't have enough faith in God's grace. I'm not going to endure. I got to do more. I got to do more. I got to do more. It's not what Paul told Timothy. He said, be strong in the grace. Be strong in the grace. And if you do that, you will keep coming back even when you're faithless, when you doubt, when you've sinned, when you've blown it. Just like Abraham, Moses, and David, what separated all those men apart is whenever they would sin, they would come back to God because they knew that they weren't going back to who they were. And they kept coming back and asking, saying, God, I'm here. And God says, I'm, I'm still faithful to you, but I'm faithful to you because I'm, I'm faithful to me. And you're, I'm in you. You chose to invite me in, which means I'm faithful to who's in you. This isn't about you. 
This is about the God that called you to a relationship and you responded. That's what this is about. If that isn't incredible, and that's why he says, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's how all the glory has gotten. It's not for your glory. It's not so I can stand and say, look at what all I've done. Look at what, should we say, look at what God's done? Absolutely, but it's so subtle because we want to say, look at what I've done because we don't really trust in the grace of God. We're trying to prove something. And the Bible says, man, listen, if you want to be a faithful person, specifically for you men in the audience, if you want to be a faithful man, then you've got to understand, you've got to know the grace of God, teach the grace of God, get in the grace of God and really deal with it and get so close to him so that you're in a place that you know that he remains faithful to you even when you're faithless. He's never going to deny you. If you deny him when he offers salvation, then sure. If you're offered salvation, bless you. If you're offered salvation and you say, I don't want that, I don't want that Jesus, I'm walking away, and you haven't accepted him or invited him into your life, then he's going to deny you one someday when you stand before him in heaven. I don't know you, he says, depart from me into everlasting torment. I wanted to know you, but you just denied giving me the right to be your Savior. But if you've made the decision to invite him in and to be your Savior, if you are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He's in you. He wants to do something in you. He wants to deal with the stuff that's in there, but not for your glory and not for your earthly success. He wants to do it so you can be put on display and people will someday read your story like we read Moses and Abraham and David and go, ugh, but man, God's all over that. And people will go, yeah, he's, uh, but man, look at where God was in all of that. See, that's the story of the book of this God and what it looks like to be filled with faith. It's a faith that says, God, you're everything. I'm nothing. And I'm ready to give you permission to be everything each and every day and keep coming back to you. And so even as you prepare your hearts for communion in a few weeks, could I just encourage you to think about what communion means? Christ paid the penalty that you owe. And for you to say to God, there's something I still have to do is not believing in the faithfulness of God and his grace for you. Now, do we need accountability? Do we need to make disciples? Do we need to teach and ask people to obey? Absolutely. Absolutely. We need to have hard conversations with people because here's the deal. Our works just expose what's really down inside our hearts. And sometimes we do sin because deep down inside, we're not fully embracing the grace of God. God says, I want you to understand who I am fully. And if you do that, you'll never run to another thing. You'll never run to another thing. You'll run to me.